Welcome to the What's Up with Docs podcast. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. For our land acknowledgement this week, we're going to highlight the Santa Ynez band of the Chumash. The Chumash people once numbered in the tens of thousands and lived along the coast of California. Through centuries of hardships and abuse, the tribe has overcome all odds in order to thrive on the land of their Chumash ancestors once more. At one time, Chumash territory encompassed 7,000 square miles that spanned from the beaches of Malibu to Paso Robles. The tribes also inhabited inland to the western edge of the San Joaquin Valley. Utilizing resources from both the land and the sea, they called themselves the first people and pointed to the Pacific Ocean as their first home. These early Chumash ancestors were hunters, gatherers, and fishermen who lived in large dome-shaped homes that were made of willow branches. As the Chumash culture advanced with boat making, basketry, stone cookware, and the ability to harvest and store food, the villages became more permanent. The Chumash society became tiered and ranged from manual laborers to the skilled crafters, chiefs, and shaman priests, who were also accomplished astronomers. Women were served equally as chiefs and priests. As with most Native American tribes, the Chumash history was passed down from generation to generation through stories and legends. Many of these stories were lost when the Chumash Indian population faced turmoil. To learn more about the Santa Ynez band of the Chumash, please visit the link on our website. In this episode, we continue our celebration of the 2021 edition of IPA as I chat with the senior programmer of the festival, Laura Van Helsema. We talk about how she got into docs, her nearly 20 years with IPA, and we take a deep dive into the Unconscious Bias Focus Program at the festival this year. The song for this episode is from one of the films in the Focus Program and is entitled Chela City. The film, called Chelas Nakao, is a collaboration between two collectives and is about the people and kids growing in Chelas, which is a neighborhood in Lisboa. Laura said, when we spoke about Clifford Garris's webs of influence during our conversation, she thought of this film and about the filmmakers who live in that area of town. Here's our conversation, which was recorded in November, 2021. We know this is a very busy time of the year for you. As of today, you just wrapped up the third day of the festival. So how are you doing? So far, so good. We, uh, like you say, it's the third day. It's, uh, it's uh, a very, I mean, this is my 20th edition. And I think I can already say this is the most memorable one in many ways. It's a very strange uh, year because just before we um, opened, we had to shut down a lot of the things that are happening in the city. Mm -hmm. But we are lucky to be able to have the cinemas open and a lot of our guests and filmmakers are with us in Amsterdam and there's also lots of audience. So it's working out fine and there are many beautiful, interesting moments already. I was actually really surprised about how many people are traveling this year. Some of the filmmakers I know um, who live in Korea are there this year. Yeah, we have guests from all over the world actually really so that's uh, that's that's amazing and it's also of course a big responsibility but it's reassuring to know that so many people really need and have the urge to uh, celebrate the films again together and uh, with all the measurements and uh, and things happening with the with the pandemic etc it's still we do our best to make it work within the little space we are allowed to uh, create the festival as best as we can. I think that was one of the many, many hard things uh, about the pandemic in correlation with the festivals is, yes, we were able to watch films online, but there is missing that interaction and that camaraderie that happens, you know, when watching things together. So it's good that we're learning how to get back together safely. Yes, and it's actually, of course, it's I to me that is what cinema is about—to be going to a, a theater and watch a film uh, in the way that it is made. And in a festival, it's all about connecting also with the filmmaker and having contact and be interacting with each other. And it's obviously such a different thing from sitting uh, at home watching something from your computer. So. I don't know if that's the correct word, but I think it's very reassuring and good to have the chance to do it and find that there are so many people all over the world that are joining us in the effort to do it safely, but uh, be here with us. Yeah. 
so how did you get into documentary? Well, I always liked film. I'm one of the programmers. Uh, I think I'm actually the only programmer that did not study film. I, uh, I studied American history, but um, as this is, of course, also very often related to visual sources, if you will, and also it can be cinema, that was very much an angle for me. So my thesis, which was not very interesting otherwise, but was really about film. What was your thesis about American film? It was a study on how the Nixon era and Watergate is sort of perceived by the, the regular audience, so to speak, Americans, through three works of fiction. And that those works of fiction, Nixon by Oliver Stone, uh, All the President's Men, and the film by Altman, three very different films about a very historical thing, and compare those takes on, on a specific events with um, academic history making. Because for so many people, that those films are what it was like, and to see if this is something... Um, you can actually use as a source of reliable information and in what way you can or can't. I think one of the conclusions was that the authenticity, such as in all the president men where they really did everything, like even the bins were the same from the real uh, Washington Post. I mean, the point is that it's more about what you try to convey and it's about perspective and angles and the commentary. So it was also uh, maybe not so original conclusion that there is not such a thing as an objective take on history but what yeah something that makes you think about the facts and what they mean and how you can present these so that's uh, but anyway so I think also within my studies watching films either documentary or fiction film was uh, a big part and also because I've always been since I was a very young child a big film fan and so I would visit ITFA I, I really like to um yeah, in, indulge in all these different takes on the world we live in today, and not just the US, but every uh, corner of our world and in every possible way thinkable, whether it's really small and poetic or it's like a big meta, uh, more journalistic thing. I graduated just really a week or two after uh, 11 September. And so I was like, okay, what am I going to do? And I, um, applied for it fine I got the job and I never left so since you've been there for all this time like what are some of the changes that you've seen in regards to the types of documentary films that you have been a part of selecting as well as just a I mean it's probably a huge question but as far as changes in the documentary landscape it's been more the the industry or the world around it like uh, for many years documentary was maybe considered to be a niche obviously for a longer period now it's become a big interesting part within the whole overall film industry that has a lot of advantages of course because it's good if uh, documentary is growing up and has a wider audience and people get to uh, appreciate that specific type of cinema. But it's at the same time, of course, also comes with a more narrow and formal thing because it becomes more interesting for bigger parties and there's more money involved, which also at the same time makes it less accessible, I guess, for a lot of other people and maybe less room for experiment. So I think our focus has had to accommodate or to really look into all these wider changes and try to both celebrate this sort of embrace uh, of, the, of the form, but also the place where there would still be enough space for more smaller productions, people that, that are not having access to the big funding or the big platforms. So it's, it's really too separate but very interconnected developments I guess and I think this year we we started a whole new or we we introduced a new program structure where we try to really reflect on these two major similar developments I guess so we have now the international competition which is featuring and celebrating the films that are more relying on um, the, the 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 tradition of documentary cinema which is really sort of grown-up form, if you can say. And the Envision competition, on the other hand, is really more a place for experimentation and allowing uh, films that 
are still like really looking for the best way to make a film. And that is a very wide um, bandwidth. One of the filmmakers we interviewed last week featured producer Mustafa Youssef, who is a producer based in Cairo, Egypt, and he is the person who produced Homemade Stories. It's a film that we're very happy uh, that we've selected and is part of our Envision competition. And the reason is, of course, because before we kind of thought and designed this new setup, we were also not sure if, how that would actually work, what kind of films would be. I mean, I think with International, it's quite clear. But with Envision, how is that pure experimentation or, you know, and that depends. It's, it's, it's of course, communicating with each other. Homemade Stories is very much a film also about filmmaking, where the director, Miguel Aldips, who is a renowned fiction filmmaker from Syria, has moved to Egypt, living there in exile with his family, and kind of trying to restart his life there and make a home. But he was very active, not just as a filmmaker, but also in film clubs. And he's trying to transition, if that's the word, that's part of who he is to Egypt. It's a beautiful film that not only celebrates filmmaking, but also the experience of the film goer as well. Yes, absolutely. And I was telling Mustafa when Mustafa, when we talked to him, that one of the things that I thought was most beautiful about the film was ability to really get all these folks to tell their personal stories and personal memories about cinema. And you can see as they're talking about these things, their faces just light up and it's like taking them back to the past. And it's this really like heartfelt memory. It's an essential part of, of many people's lives and also obviously from him. And um, it's something he could tries to bring with him in his new started life. And I think that is very strong. So it's not just about him as an artist trying or restarting, but also reconnecting to that part of his daily life, I guess, being a member of a community that uh, for, for whom cinema is such an essential part of, um, of being. Since you are a senior programmer of such a large festival, obviously you have these specific competition areas lined up, but um, when you're talking about the various pathways and the various focuses that you determine are going to be the strands for the festival, does that come from the films that are submitted? Or is that something that is thought about ahead of time before you begin to even request submissions? The pathways are really made up, or we think about those when the selection is done. So we look, basically, we take a step back, look at all the films we've selected. And then, of course, already during selection process, you notice, hey, this is interesting. This filmmaker's doing this. And even if it's an entirely different type of film from that film, there is this similarity and it can be on many different levels and the pathways are really a response to whatever we have in front of us whereas the focus programs are actually the opposite so it's more curating from an idea that you start with and of course along the process you sometimes change that a bit because you are depending on whatever you find and also through watching films, which for focus programs can be either old films and also new films. The films themselves also can change your thoughts of your uh, initial idea, of course. The starting point is already defined before we get the films. So I think they're really the opposite in that sense. The one is done prior to whatever we have, and the other one is really a response or a reflection of the whole selection in every program section or even new media. It can be anything. It's sort of like looking at what do we have in front of us and what are interesting things that some of these pathways, they have things that will always be there. And we find it interesting and important to also highlight that. But there's also things that when you have a year where there's a really specific, interesting kind of thing that we see in different films, we will um, yeah, define that in a sense. Before we go any further, I actually want to do a shout out to Petra, who reached out to myself and Renell to invite us to, to partner with IFA this year. So we want to thank her for that, for making it happen and facilitating the introductions to Laura. Thank you, Petra 
for your work because we always have to celebrate the people um, behind the scenes. The strand we're going to talk about is the unconscious bias strand. When Ranelle and I were emailing and meeting with Petra, we were talking about different ideas for what we wanted this essentially third episode, if a theme episode to be about. When she sent us the link that explained what unconscious bias was, like Ranelle and I said, yes, we have to focus on that. Speaking from the US-based perspective, usually when we talk about unconscious bias, in the U.S., we're talking about basically prejudices or beliefs that people have that they act upon that they are not aware that they're acting upon. You know, and, and a lot of times this is like a root of where like a lot of prejudice and racism comes from. And sometimes people aren't aware of these biases. And then there are all these universities, I think like Yale and Harvard that have these online tests. You could test your unconscious bias. Well, they're throw up faces or images with positive and negative names. So you could actually measure what your bias is toward a particular group or like whether it was based on ethnicity or religion. So I thought it was really fascinating that you all at IFA were thinking about unconscious bias from the filmmaking perspective, because of course, our, the media that we consume can in many ways validate the unconscious biases that we have. Yeah, so tell us about why did you all decide to do this particular strand? Of course, with these focus programs, we are always trying to think of themes that are interesting, that are out there, that are in different parts of society are at the front. But it's also at the same time important that we speak about film because that's how we uh, communicate or that's, yeah, that's the expression. A couple of years ago, we started doing a program series, basically, which was called Shifting Perspectives, which I think is sort of the start of this, which was about this idea that, of course, everything we see and think has so much to do with not just your own background as a viewer, but also with the perspective or the background of the person who is offering his or her view. And so that was sort of like a pilot, if you will. And this discussion is of this subject has become way more prominent over the years. And that's also reflecting in films that we, we see and we find and the responses we get from the filmmaker community, but also from audiences. So it didn't feel like, oh, well, we've done it and now we're going to look for something else because this is obviously a thing which is constantly evolving. It's always connected to things that are happening in our world. So this particular program started from also the fact that this year in Amsterdam, a couple of cultural institutions, such as our big museum, the Rijksmuseum, which is our national museum, like the Rembrandts are there and all these objects. And they opened a big exhibition on slavery, which uh, was the first time that such an important museum that's really about our national history in Holland would take that uh, as an angle. And because, of course, the whole museum is filled with things that are always going back to the, the time or a lot of objects and paintings when the Dutch and Amsterdam also, of course, was a big colonizer and traveling the world. I think that this is also a reaction to a discussion which is very slowly but surely really starting up right now, which is kind of bizarre to realize. I think since 10, 15 years, maybe there is more attention to have a counter narrative to the, the dominant idea of our history, which until now has really celebrated our glorious years of traveling the world and look at the canals and all these things. And uh, it's all good. But of course, there's a very, very different side to that story. And I think we only now are acknowledging, making space, trying to include other people to also contribute to this national narrative. So this has been something which is brewing for a while and it's been uh, resulted in, in interesting exhibitions and uh, there was a big book this year which was kind of a collection of the things that have been published in the academic world but also in culture about this, this side of to us it felt like yeah this is very interesting for 
Opera Festival based in Amsterdam to see if we can somehow contribute to this from the angle of making a film program. Because obviously the objects and paintings in the museum are old. They're really from, to a large extent, from that period. But the films are not so old. But still, that doesn't mean there is not so much prove or there's not so much resonance of that legacy of of that dark period of history and so it's basically a, a continuation of the shifting perspectives and gladly also think there's more uh, increasing number of filmmakers who are really getting into it because of the discussion also it's always like filmmakers of course are part of the society so if there's like, I think a younger generation that is speaking up and trying to correct the dominant view or uh, actually also looking at their own background and thinking about their parents that in many cases were not so vocal or intimidated or there was not a room for another take on what has happened. Because of course that, that history is maybe 300 years ago, but the colonization is very recently uh, I mean that that really that the end of that period is just very recent so there's a lot of people living today that have a very personal connection to it also I think it made sense to look into it and as far as this particular program I was also interested because a lot of the time when we speak about it I think the United States is often the, the discussions and everything happening there is also sort of the instigator for a lot of the things. So there's a lot of words that we, but often I think, sure, there's many similarities. There's lots of parallels, but there's also a quite a big difference. I thought it's an interesting uh, starting point to see how does Europe, which of course is then in that sense, the basis, which has I mean, I cannot speak for Europe, obviously, but I think no, it's, please it's speak very for the tempting. Whole, yeah, you, I'm speaking on behalf of all of you. <laughs> I think there is a, a sort of naivete, if you will, to look into it because it's maybe easier to ignore it. But that's not true at the same time because it's all over, not just in the social sense on a personal level, but it's also the architecture. It's everything. And so it's an interesting thing that's there. But how visible do we make it? And I think that was a great source for looking into film, of course, because it's about what do we see? How do we look? What do we ignore? Who offers uh, their view here? Were you talking about essentially making the invisible visible? I want to bring up this quote from anthropologist Clifford Gerritz. And he has this concept called webs of significance. And I'm just going to read this quote. I mean, he says, an individual is bound up in a series of symbolic and mythic representations. Man is an animal suspended in webs of significance he himself has spun. When Gertz talks about these webs, they are so all-encompassing that we are not, we become unaware of the webs in which we are, are trapped or the webs in which we lived in. And these webs can be culture, and particularly um, in this sense, like the dominant culture. So sometimes when we are in this dominant or domineering cultures, we buy into them because really it is the air that we breathe. But those of us who are outside of it can see the cracks. And then that's when the disruption comes. And when we are trapped in these webs, they seem like all encompassing and all right, not all right, but all right. When people who are not part of the web where it would kind of like step out of that, call attention like, hey, this isn't actually the way the world is. This may be the way your world is. This is not it for everybody. Then sometimes those are places where conflicts can arise. When I think about unconscious bias, the thing that can make society better is when we become aware of those biases and then choose, even though we may still have them, whether not to act upon them. This is something I pointed out in our earlier conversation. I'm, of course, also completely a, a biased person. And I think it's interesting that there's so much to learn, really, and to be aware of these things and to know that, yeah, I mean, you can have all these opinions and uh, positions, but it's so different if you are in the web to uh, use your phrasing. And I think that is obviously something that I find very fascinating and interesting and important too. And I think 
a part of the focus program was, and that was also to, uh, actually the starting point that interested me in particular was cities, because of course in Europe, all these cities such as Amsterdam, they became really big in this era of colonization and slave trade. It's sort of like a time capsule and it's still so here. It's what makes cities interesting, but it's also important to be aware that the city is all of us and not just uh, the people that are living in those houses, but be a collective. I mean, this, this sounds a bit, uh, I don't know, naive is not the word, but uh, I mean, not a collective in that sense, but yeah, who defines society is everybody. I find that interesting about cities. It's also a time where a lot of cities are increasingly closing up in a, in a different way, but it's also connected where it becomes territory for people who have money. I feel like a city is the place where everybody should have a place. And that is, I think, historically the case, but there's only just a few people that are actually the steering wheel. Well, when you bring up the studies, it makes me think about the, your, I guess, your star film of this unconscious bias strand, Amsterdam Global Village. And for those of you who don't know, this film came out in 1996. It's actually an epic film. It's like three hours long, something four. It's really a celebration you know, about the, the diversity of the city of Amsterdam. Like we are talking and engaging with people who are from all over the world who are now calling Amsterdam their home. But it, it begins in a very interesting way. And you know, me as far as an African-American has probably a different reaction. It begins around the scenes and around Christmas and there are all these boats in the canal and there's Santa Claus. And then is it Black Pete? Yeah, it's Black Pete. So all these white folks in blackface greeting the children. And they're also sometimes greeting like actual black children. So like those are kind of the opening <laughs> scenes of this. No, which is very interesting because back then when the film came out in 1996, of course, there were always people, not only people in the Netherlands, but more so from outside who said, what the hell? This is so ridiculous. It's so racist. What are you doing? And I think for a long time, a lot of people, including myself, were not saying, oh, it's not, but it was sort of like, not thinking really. And I think, I mean, it's, that, that is one of those learning points, to be honest, where 10 years ago, there was a group of activists who said, no, no more. This is really sorry. We cannot accept this. They really have done a major job in showing what it actually is doing to people and what it represents. And that even when a lot of people think, it's innocent, it's something from the past, this is a children's thing, it's not. Or if even if that's how a lot of people experience, it's for a lot of other people really wrong and it's racist. I think that was exactly an example of something where a lot of people who previously were not advocating for this figure um, very actively or anything, but sort of took it for granted, like, oh, didn't think about it. This is a very good example of something that opened the eyes of many thinking, yeah, who cares that we don't have a problem with this figure because it's wrong. And so go away. You know, we have to change things because this is not just the party from a couple of people who have no connotation with this figure. In many ways, that is, I think, a successful campaign because it increasingly is being really abandoned. But of course, doing such a thing is also mobilizing a lot of racism, actually, that really just the mere fact of people pointing out suddenly also brought up a lot of racism that I think many of us weren't aware was actually already there. It suddenly came out of, or at least in, in such a, a big, on the, on the main stage, so to speak. So people, I think a lot of us suddenly were much more aware that we have a big problem and this is a symbol of that problem and it's time to change things and be open to change. When I saw it first, I think it was like 20 years ago. And I think I, I'm not sure if I really noted it in that sense. But now, of course, when you see that, it's like, oh, wow, this is actually something that we don't, that has changed. It's not so uh, innocent, so to speak. And being in the U.S., I have heard about Black Pete, 
but it was still shocking in a way to see so many. Yeah, yeah. No, it was all over. There's like one Santa Claus and like 20 or 30 folks in, in blackface. So, but also I am coming from my, my U.S. American perspective. So when I saw particularly one of the little black boys like shaking Black Pete's hand, I'm like thinking in my head, like, what is he thinking? Like you, you said earlier, films can be a time capsule. And when we look back on things, we can see how we receive them differently with the knowledge that we have now. Because one of my favorite quotes is the unexamined life is not worth living. And like, if you're not growing throughout your lifetime and changing and adapting, then like, what's the point? And when we know better, we do better or we should do better. But let's talk about some of the other folks in Amsterdam um, Global Village, because it's just a, a wealth of characters and protagonists and personalities. So there's Khalid, who's the Moroccan courier. I feel like he's kind of like the intersecting person. He's like our transition person. He's our guide through the city. It's a journey. The fi- I mean, a journey is not in the sense that it's used often with film, but it's like we're traveling through the city. The, the director, Jan van der Keuken, really, he made a lot of films out in other countries and he suddenly realized, but this is my city and there's so much to explore as if it were not my city. And Khalid, the, the courier, is the, is the one who's taking us to places and connecting all these different exactly yeah villages and showing this whole yeah. overall image of, of this city. But also even with just the camera work, there's this one scene where a person, she's talking to her neighbor on the balcony, but we have the point of view as the person who's who's looking up at the balcony. So not only is he taking us into these neighborhoods, but we, we are allowed to become a part of the neighborhood. Yeah, no, you're in there. And I think that is also interesting for me because we thought, okay, it's the 25th anniversary of this film and it's such a remarkable film. Let's celebrate that. And then when we thought it's actually a perfect, at least starting point for this unconscious bias program, we learned that uh, quite a lot of filmmakers, such as Alice Diop, whose film Nu or We is also part of this program that came out this year and is in Paris is a very personal film, was really inspired by that film. So that's also an interesting thing to kind of connect all these different takes on what is a city and who are the people living in a city and who is leading us through there. So it made sense to take that as a starting point and also to have that. I mean, I think a lot of these films, and that's that's also interesting about curating a program like this. You have an idea, you look for films, and then along the way, it's becoming this program. But now during the actual festival where you sort of revisit the films in a different way, because suddenly it's in a big screen, the filmmakers are there, you hear them speak about it. There are suddenly all these new connections, and I'm always happy to feel that ah, it really does make sense <laughs> what we thought of to begin with. <laughs> I think a lot of the filmmakers that I've I've talked to in the last uh, three days with films in this focus, there is a really a line uh, or like a connection to these things. And I think one of the the thoughts I had today is it's obviously about time and space, such as everything. But I think. It's, that's also quite the basic structure of lots of these stories. So for instance, there we have a film, uh, Words of Negroes, which is by Sylvain Dampierre. And it's a film about, I don't know, a judicial verdict, I think. So it's an archival piece of a slave who worked in Guadeloupe, where her, the father of the director is from. He got imprisoned for stealing a cow. And in ancient, like legal French language, workers from the sugar factory now are reading it like actors, basically. So they're reading this whole story in this formal language. So they're actually reading essentially what the transcripts from the trial? Transcripts, okay. that's the word. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So they do, and they take these roles and they kind of read it. And, and at the same time, the director really looks at their life and it's not to say, oh, it's the same, but it's an interesting connection because you see also a sense of pride to do the work. And she shows it as something which is also- It's a really- I think, unique way to re-examine history. Yeah, she brings that alive. But what she doesn't do, and that's what I find so subtle and strong, it's not like, oh, look, it's the same. 
that's not of course that's the parallel and there's the comparison but it, these men who are reading it they have their own story which is also in that film and this is also a film which is very much about language actually because mm-hmm. not only the fact that back then but also now this this language of this really i mean it's now it's ancient but even the french was not the language it was creole and so not just a text-based film, but it's also about like taking away somebody's own way to express, which is a very big element. And it's interesting to see a filmmaker work with, in that sense, with language in the word sense. So that's an interesting point too, because since this unconscious bias strand is about challenging notions of colonialism, part of colonialism is stripping away the ability of a person to communicate in ways that are inherent to them, whether that's demanding that they not speak their language, whether it's um, demanding that they not celebrate particular holidays, policing types of dress, policing hairstyles, all of that is part of a colonial legacy. And spirituality, religion. We have another film on the Zenith's Edge, which is really about how in this instance in Gabon, of course, the Christian missionaries took away the the religion of the people there. The filmmaker whose ancestors are from there, she goes back and tries to kind of revive that and try to look for the connection with her ancestors through all these spiritual, traditional Ritual, yeah, I think rituals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she asked this question as I'm looking on the IFA website, who were we before we were discovered? That's a powerful question. And of course, language, religion, those are such incredibly important pillars of a sense of self and of a community and of of culture. It's interesting to have these filmmakers that within these sort of visual means try to revive that uh, either with having people now reading this and you realize what happened there which was nothing but this man died or in that in the case of uh, on the zenith edge where she's doing it herself she's going into these rituals and really realize it's yeah it's a huge crime i'm currently associate producing a film by byron hurt called looking for lee and liza and it's essentially about Um, Byron's family reunion. So Lee and Liza, two of Byron's ancestors, like part of the film is going to be DNA analysis to see exactly whether, you know, whether the family stories like correlate with like what the DNA says. It's making me think about like some of my own family reunions and, but also the ways that we hold on to memory. Like, for example, I would go to family reunions when I was a kid. Yeah, I lived in the city and some of my distant cousins lived in what we call the country. But there are remnants from, I, I think, even though I don't know where my DNA analysis goes in regards to like where I'm, I'm from Africa, I'm assuming West Africa, so that's where most um, African-Americans um, come from. There were things like, for example, we would do, there was this legend or mythology around you would put bottles on the limbs of trees to dissuade evil spirits from coming around. It was like a good luck thing. And that's actually a tradition, I, I forget completely blanking on which which nation in Africa, but a tradition where people would put gourds on trees. But also thinking about the African-American church and when people get spirit, when the music comes in. Like these are traditions that are from the homeland that manifest not only African-American church, but in um, religions like Santeria and and just across the globe. Even though we've been stripped of, of so many things, we do have memory is powerful. And I think ancestral memory is powerful. When this director of On the Zenith's Edge asked, who were we before we were discovered? We have remnants of that memory. So we have some things to, to go back to that give us clues, that help us give us clues to help us rediscover who we are. Sort of archaeological almost, like looking into your own background of course exactly and these are in like the family stories the oral history family traditions that we do that we just think we just do for one reason but so it's kind of like my learning how to mind that but it's also an interesting other sub topic i think not just in this program but throughout the whole program that we have quite a few films of young people or quite young filmmakers that 
are really looking for parents' background or stories or great or grandparents. And one of the other films is In the Billowing Night uh, by Erika Etzanjale. And she was born in France, um, but her father was from Réunion, an island, of course, near Madagascar. After was decolonized, he came to France as a very young man and never spoke about it. And she wants to understand not just him, but also wants to know what happened on the island, which is part of her as well, obviously. And so I think that's also an interesting point here that I think more people are become more vocal in this generation because he didn't speak about it. And so that's, that's I think, an interesting other part of like people now feel like, okay, we need to know and it's not something to not talk about. So they kind of demand that this story needs to be told. And that's interesting. And her father is gradually opening up and, and comes with her. And it's it's an incredibly painful story also, but it's also beautiful in the sense of the film that she really uses her camera, which is something that Alice Diop also does, to find this part of her and uh, of this history. I mean, you could tell there's, I think from a lot of the titles in the strand, there's like a longing to remember what, or to discover what has been deemed not discoverable or unapproachable. So like the title, like Indonesia Calling, Nelly's Memory, Now is the Past, My Father Java and the Phantom Film, Returning to Reem, all these titles about going back and looking back. Starting point of the focus was the film Amsterdam Global Village. And then I was looking for other films that in different ways would also make a city portrait through the citizens, but then the cities from Europe, from the former colonial powers. Tonight, I presented two films that are called Celas Nakao and Half a Light Year, which are both in Lisbon, the capital of Portugal. I think, interestingly enough, there were so many new films also coming out that, like you just mentioned, all these titles were, are like really undeniable reaching for the past which is very recent is also reflecting on a more ancient past and through film i mean it's not just a subject it's not just describing oh this happened but it's always like with the means of a camera and trying to find the story or the the yeah it was funny because when i was watching amsterdam global village it made me feel so old. I'm 50. Like came out when I was like 24, 25 and like seeing the clothes from the 90s that I thought were cool then, but aren't now. <laughs> I know, I know. Time capsule. I was like, oh my goodness. I used to think that was fly, but not so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's hip again. Yeah, I it think. comes back <laughs> around. <laughs> A lot of these things. It does. It does. Just, just hold on. Don't empty your closet out yet. But one film I wanted to ask about is Raoul Peck's film about Patrice Lumumba. Why was that selected? Because I'm a huge film of Raoul Peck. For those of you who don't know, look him up, particularly watch I Am Not Your Negro. And then after that, watch Exterminate All the Brutes. It would totally shift your reality. Talking about making unconscious biases conscious. Like that is such a powerful film, but it was really cool to see that one of his earlier films was in as part of the selection. It's interesting because it was actually also part of the, the first shifting perspectives, because first of all, it's a great film. And it's also just interesting to mention, maybe we do have another focus program, which is uh, curated by my, uh, my programmer colleague, Sarah Dawson, which is called The Future Ten. Um, Lumumba is in both things because her focus is on future. And this is also, of course, sort of a future that was cut off. There's a different angle why she took it. We thought it was interesting to select the films in these two different programs. Yeah, I think it's outside of it being a really great film. It's also, of course, about how this history, this particular history of Lumumba and Congo has been perceived in the West or in Belgium in this sense. And he has a very personal connection as the son of a Haitian father who was working there. And he grew up in, like, I think a mainly white suburban part of Kinshasa, being the child of someone who's working for the government. And 
revisiting what happened and that there is such a different take on the murder of, of Patrice Lumumba, which was perceived often as he was like a terrorist or whatever. Particularly about, again, from the American perspective, by the U.S. government, because it, this was just something that was put on a lot of these um, leaders who were coming up as a lot of these nations in Africa were becoming independent. And they weren't aligned politically with the U.S. and they were sometimes labeled as like communists, you know, which is a, and from the U.S. perspective, a stigma. There has been some talk about, you know, the CIA's possible involvement in the assassination of Lumumba. Of course, this was also in the Cold War, in the height of the Cold War. There, there was so much geopolitical uh, dirty games happening there. But one of the things in the film, which is so interesting, is that he also is looking for the archival, the archives basically of what happened, and they're all locked up in Brussels. So this was also in that sense, I found it to be an interesting thing. Like, so who owns, literally who owns the images, which is also yet another film in the program, Now is the Past, the subject of this film by uh, the filmmaker who is from Japan and his father, was a documentary filmmaker who made propaganda films for the Japanese government during World War II in Indonesia. And of course, by that time, Indonesia was still a colony of the Netherlands. And the filmmaker really is looking not just for the images, which leads him to the Netherlands, and they're locked up in our archives. And he's sort of, can I take them? You know, they're ours. It's, of course, also very much about him wondering, like, why did you work for, like, this regime? And it's a little bit of a sidebar, which I found interesting, because the man is just was just a filmmaker. He wanted to make films, and he was maybe not so politically in that sense. So that's another question like responsibility and being a part of uh, of this narrative and uh, etc but of course for us and in this program it's also very interesting to have this sort of side look onto what happened because the Japanese were occupying Indonesia during the war but it's been like for a couple of centuries it was the Dutch and here again and that's a little bit the, the parallel with uh, the Raoul Peck film it's that these these images, which are so important to understand and share, they are uh, still in the hands of the Dutch. And the images of what happened with Lumumba and all that part of history is still in the possession of the Belgian uh, government or archives. That was a very literal, very explicit way of looking into who owns the image. I mean, how do we deal with this big past? We did an episode, which we're not releasing until um, January, partnered with Doc Leipzig again this year. And one of the episodes we did was with the filmmaker um, Jihan El Tari, where we talked about the manifesto that she and a group of Global South filmmakers headed up about liberating the image, particularly in, in regards to archives and who holds them and who has the rights to them. You know, particularly when you're we're talking about archives that have been taken from folks in the global south and are now housed in the global north. Who has the power over, over those? She would use a, a different nomenclature than I use, which was actually one of the great things about that conversation, was she was kind of like challenging my own little Clifford Garrett's web about like ownership and things like that. How do people who live in countries that have been former colonies, whose not only wealth, but also maybe cultures have been extracted, and in this case, sometimes archives, what is the responsibility of those colonizers to return that material to, to the people, whether that be a filmmaker from there or just to the people as a whole to have, get access to that. There is also films, of course, about artifacts and museums. That's a different thing. It's also like, yeah, it's it's stolen, it's sitting here and um, it needs to be returned. In. And that's a whole other part of this thing as well. But I think in the images, that's of course, because we're doing a film festival. That's a huge part of it. And for instance, there's this film, Francis, Our Mother Country by Riti Pan, the Cambodian director. And this, he is very active in his country to, uh, after the Khmer Rouge regime, to build an archive, to really uh, make a national kind of histories. And, and then we return to whatever it is, which is the basis is that, yeah, it, 
it's about film, it's about images. So that's that's obviously a good part of this. What do you want viewers to take away from, from The Strand? I never know to answer that because I don't think that I make the program thinking that or having that pretense, pretension or maybe illusion that I will change people's lives. But I think it's a little effort to contribute, I think, to whatever, what you, you said before, sort of yeah, awareness in this sense, I think is a bit of an unhappy word because it's not a campaign or anything. It's just, there's so much happening. And I think it's interesting to look what uh, a film festival such as ITFA can do uh, to be part of that. And that's, I guess, what, what I try to do. And first and foremost, outside of all the thoughts and uh, ambition, so to speak, I think it's about uh, presenting great films. Ultimately, it's not, I think this will change the world, unfortunately, but I think it's what we do. We show great films and we, of course, hope that whoever is interested in watching uh, these films will take something from it. That's always happening. So, yeah, I think it's it's a very modest ambition, but I think that's that's more realistic. <laughs> I was going to say a better question probably would be how has working on the strand, and not just the strand, but the process of moving, shifting perspectives to unconscious bias, like change you personally, how you are in the world? In many ways. I mean, it's related to my earlier answer about the black beat thing. I think it's, I mean, now, now I may sound like I was completely oblivious. And I, I don't think it was that bad, but I think it is enriching and important to be aware of these other takes on the world we live in. And I'm way more interested in perspectives, stories, backgrounds that uh, I'm not familiar with or that are not in that sense my own or my own uh, point of reference from my life. So that's, I think, something that uh, throughout the years, but it's also before I worked on these programs, I think in general, documentary is a very good thing to like if you're a curious person. And uh, I think that's in general what uh, I like about documentaries, that you get to be invited by filmmakers to their world or the world of their characters. Yeah, it's just curiosity. Maybe I'm nosy. I don't know. <laughs> We'd like to thank Laura for being on the podcast this week. And we also like to thank Petra Blaskovich of the IDFA Press Office for reaching out to Renelle and I about collaborating with us here at the What's Up With Docs podcast. The Unconscious Bias Focus Program celebrates formerly silent histories and stories and challenges cultural norms rooted in mythologies based on subjugation and colonialism. It is time to really hear all of our stories. This is our last full episode of the year, and we want to thank all of you who have downloaded our show, visited our website, subscribed to our newsletter, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We wouldn't be here without you. We also like to thank our listeners who are from all over the world. Our top 10 countries are, of course, the U.S., Germany, the UK, Canada, Egypt, Turkey, Ireland, France, and South Africa. And for 2021, the top visited episode pages on our website are episode 17 with Bruce Scott Buski, episode 19 with Lindsay Dryden and Day Al Muhammad, episode 18 with Chloe Walters Wallace, episode 21 with April Dobbins, and last but not least, episode 26 with Rosita Cox. In December, we'll release a second past guest roundup where we will share good news about our favorite doc peeps. We'll start out January with two episodes we co-curated for Doc Leipzig in October, featuring Miriam Ghani and Jihan El Tari. And in 2022, we are bringing you interviews with Marian Schmidt, Betsy Tsai, Jennifer Crystal Chen, Emma Francis Snyder, Ivan and Ivy McDonald, Reed Davenport, Jaquil Constant, Barbara Gameshi, and Chitra Juyaru. Don't forget about us on Giving Tuesday. Show your financial support for this podcast by clicking on our PayPal link on our website. Visit our website at What's Up W Docs. That's What's Up W Docs. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at What's Up W Docs. Again, that's What's Up W Docs. And remember, keep telling your stories. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Renelle Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas. The What's Up With Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Chumash and Tongva 
on which we are recording this podcast.